Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. James Victor Kane was born and raised in Houston, Texas. He played football for Booker T. Washington High School in the Independence Heights neighborhood. He later played for the University of Colorado. He was the seventh overall selection in the 1974 NFL draft. Two years later, he emerged as full-time starting tight end for the St. Louis Cardinals NFL team. On his 28th birthday, J.V. Kane dropped dead on the field while working out in extreme heat during training camp at Lindenwood College in St. Charles, Missouri. He lived 28 years to the day. Then he was gone. J.V. Kane's death followed my own father's death by about 20 months. My father was one of those guys who was never sick a day, day in his life. You know the type. I'm actually kind of that way too. Uh, you know, never, never miss work because of illness, and yet I could die tomorrow. I could die while I'm standing here. No one would have expected, no one was anticipating the death of J.V. Kane. No one was anticipating the death of my father, Edgar Mitwitty. But that's sort of how death is, isn't it? It's insidious, hideous, repulsive, painful. The Apostle Paul refers to death as an enemy in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And I think that's how we tend to see it too, isn't it? Death is an enemy. But there's more to it than that. And I think that our study today through James 4, verses 13 through 17, we're going to be looking at some verses in in, uh, Psalm 39. We're going to be looking at some verses in Luke 12. Hopefully, all of these will help us to see that there's another way that we need to look at death, not just as an enemy. I'm going to say something that's going to sound pretty weird. There is a grace in death. And hopefully, as a result of our study in the Word today, we'll understand that. Turn, if you would, to James now, chapter 4. James 4, we're continuing our study through James, and we're to James 4, 13. We'll be reading verses 13 through 17. If you need a Bible, there should be some in around your, where you're seated on the floor, and uh, you might want to use a device if that's uh, your pleasure. I always tell my wife when she's using her device that she's being divisive. So, uh, and she's good at it. Actually, I've gotten to be pretty good at that too. So, um, let's look at what James uh, says to us. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while 
and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, would you by your Spirit open our minds, open our hearts to what you want to communicate to us about life and about death. May we come to understand that death informs life, that our fragility, that our frailty, that our fleetingness actually are a blessing that should turn our attention to our rock, to our refuge, to our Redeemer. May that be the case. Would you be glorified in our midst today? To the praise of King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. When you go through the book of James, if you're like me, you, you might think that the book is a little bit like Proverbs. You know, a lot of different subjects are touched upon. There's, there's, it seems like everything's sort of detached, that, that there's not a flow to it. But I hope that perhaps you'll see that there is a flow. The more deeply you think about this passage and about the book, you'll see that, that James keeps hitting particular things, and he's, he's trying to get at some real heart issues. So quite a bit of James feels that way, like it's detached and, and, and kind of just chunks of information. But that's a false impression. The, the verses here, the, the very first verse that we read, we get this picture of merchants. And there were Jewish, Jewish merchants in that day who acted exactly this way, who said, today, tomorrow, I'm going to go to such and such town. Here are my plans. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to trade this product. I'm going to make this much money. But James tells us that we're a mist, a vapor. The word actually means, think of, think of a bonfire, and, and when you get to, before you get it going fully, there's some smoke. And you think of a wisp of smoke that goes off the top of that fire. That's the picture of this word, that little wisp of smoke that appears for a moment and is gone. We understand here, we're, we live in a place where you wake up in the morning, there's fog, you can't see, you know, to get out of the driveway. But by mid-morning, certainly by lunchtime, the fog is lifted, it's gone. So we, we understand this idea. We see in this passage that before really unpacking everything for us, James starts off by addressing what is, in fact, a tongue sin. Now, in, in the book of James earlier, we've seen tongue sin addressed. Much of the first part of chapter 3 is addressing the whole issue of the tongue and the, the havoc that it can wreak. But there's a greater problem than the tongue sin here. It's not just a problem that these Jewish merchants would say, I'm planning to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to accomplish this. There was a problem of the heart. 
there was a warped view of reality that I think we'll come to, to grasp a little of as we go through this passage together. I don't have this projected for you, but the first main point is this. Our attitude toward life and death matters, and the one influences the other. Our attitude toward life affects our view of death, and our attitude towards death affects our view of life, or at least it ought to. And that's what the Holy Spirit says, not me. Puritan writer and thinker Thomas Manton in his commentary on verse 13, writes, thoughts are the purest offspring of the soul and reveal its temper. People are what their desires are. What are our desires about life? We've got a lot of young people in the fellowship here, and you have all sorts of plans, all sorts of aspirations, things you would like to accomplish. I still, and look, I've got white hair, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I actually walk through airports sometimes when I'm traveling internationally. I'm like, I should be supervised. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. I, man, somebody help. Of course, I try to look grown up, but I think those things. How do we go through life? How do we view our life and do we allow death to inform our lives. The merchants described here had big plans with regard to destination, duration, and occupation, or maybe I should say preoccupation. But their plans failed to factor in the greatest factor of all, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the giver of life. Now, Luke 12 is instructive in this. Jesus teaches through a parable. And I ask you to turn there with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to read through a, a big chunk of this together. Luke chapter 12, and we will launch in at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body and what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For wherever your treasure is, there will be your heart also." The type of merchants that are referred to in James 4 should have known. These were Jewish merchants most probably. They should have known some of the Proverbs, you know, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. They probably would have heard the proverb that we have, that we call Proverb 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day will bring. Do we know what tomorrow will bring? Do we know what this afternoon will bring? How are we planning? How are we plotting a course for our lives? Do we factor in the greatest factor of all, or do we choose to trust ourselves? Do we choose to worship self rather than our Creator, our Sustainer, who has become our Savior. I'm not going to point fingers at anyone. I do this all the time, where I trust myself. One of the first verses I ever learned as a, as a, a new disciple was John 15:5, And many of you have learned that verse. Uh, in fact, I wear a ring that, has, that reminds me of that verse. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, it's easy to memorize that verse, isn't it? I memorized it, what, February of 1978? I know it. You, I just proved that I know the verse. But do I understand what it means to abide in Christ? Do you understand what it means to abide in Christ, to remain in Christ, and to allow His fruit 
be born out of your life. I'll be the first one to confess that I go through days where I'm not abiding. I don't fully understand what abiding is all about, but I know that there are days that I go through and I plan and I do just like the merchants in James 4, 13, 14, just like them, and I'm doing stuff without Christ. Now, does that fly in the face of what Jesus says? Without me, you can do nothing? Well, I think we can understand that what Jesus is saying, we can do nothing of lasting value, nothing of eternal significance in our own strength according to our own plans. Now, we don't want to boast about what the day will bring. We don't know if we'll be here tomorrow. But does that mean that we forsake the idea of planning, of preparation, of coordination? Let go and let God? He'll sort it all out? I still have to turn in lesson plans. I still have to grade papers. I'm a teacher, okay? I, I can't just say, I don't even know if tomorrow will come. Because those students and their parents, if I wait long enough to get the papers back, they'll be saying, Where, what's the grade on this assignment? No, we don't give up planning and preparation. That's not the point of what the Spirit is communicating to us through the pen of James. We are contingent beings. Now, contingent is not a word that… How many of you have used the word contingent in the last month? Oh, wow, I love this. There's some people who've used the word contingent. Great, great word. What does it mean? It means that we are dependent. We are dependent. We don't have life in and of ourselves. Our life has been given to us. We have needs. We are dependent upon God and His mercies. We depend upon Him for our very breath. Our lives are in His hand. Yet how often do we boast about tomorrow or next year? How often do we act as if we're autonomous, independent beings? I think it's a great reminder that God puts us into a body, right, or into a spiritual temple that He is building. We're a part of something that's bigger than us. And one of the great things that God does for us is He gives us to one another. He's given us His Son. Through the Son, He has given us His Spirit. But He's also given us one another in our missional communities. Hopefully, we're, we're seeing that life that comes through living in community of recognizing that we're dependent and that He meets a lot of our needs through our brothers and sisters in the body. But back to the idea of this treasure. What is our treasure? Is Christ our treasure? I love that that book of, of John Piper's, uh, The Dangerous Duty of Delight. It's a great little book. I, I always read little books because they're the only kind I finish. 
my, my, my tendency is to start big books, and I'll have like eight big books going. And then I never finish any of them. So I like little books. So if you ever want to give me a book, give me a little book, and I might finish it. But one of his, the ideas that he communicates there, and he communicates in, in many of his teachings and writings, is this. God is most glorified in us when? When we're most satisfied in him. And yet, how often are we like these merchants who, who plan and go through life and do stuff, but we're not abiding? We're not allowing him to bring fruit out of our lives. If, as Jesus taught in Luke 12, we're rich toward God, then the things of this life, work, finances, relationships, health, property, possessions, They'll be seen for what they are if we allow the gospel to color our world. But I want to ask you this question because a lot of this message is kind of a downer. I mean, how often do we like to talk about death? Death gets a bad rap, actually. If it weren't for the death of Christ, where would we be? But even... Our death, physical death, we need to have a, a renewed vision of how death informs life. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 39. Psalm 39. I like to think of this as, as actually a parallel passage. It's sort of like the, the synoptics. It's the a, it's a same view, uh, but in the Old Testament. It's a psalm of David, Psalm 39, kind of toward the middle of the Bible, a little bit before the middle. It's usually pretty easy to find psalms, isn't it? There's so many of them. Psalm 39, and we'll read the first seven verses. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. It's interesting to note that David, the psalmist here, begins with the tongue, even as we've seen in the book of James, this repeated emphasis upon the tongue. But the big issue here is not just what happens, not just what happens here, it's what's behind that. It's what generates the types of things that we say. David understands that the, that the tongue can 
wreak havoc. And the pain to which it can give rise. Even so, he ventures to speak here, and he speaks about the most momentous of subjects. Make me know the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You've made my days a few handbreadths. Note that he doesn't ask to know the day of his death. How horrible would that be? He wants to understand his own temporariness. In James, the lifespan is compared to a vapor or mist. Here to a mere breath or shadow. I love what Aeschylus, the Greek uh, writer of tragedies, compared life to. He says that it's like the shadow of smoke. Boy, that's, you talk about hard hitting. Have you ever noticed that smoke can, can cast a shadow? It doesn't cast a shadow for long. So the smoke itself is just this little wisp that appears and is gone. Think of the shadow then cast by that. Ponder that for a moment. Your life is like the shadow cast by smoke. But the psalmist here isn't just strutting his poetic stuff and, and just trying to think of cool things to write. He has some serious, legitimate concerns. He wants to understand, he wants to grasp deeply the fleetingness of his life. Why? <laughs> because when we grasp that, we stop living for the day and instead for eternity. Does death inform your life? Does the prospect of your impending death give any type of shape or different type of understanding or direction to your life, to your daily life? This is easier for old people like me. Torn labrum, bad knees, sweating problem. Even when I weighed 160 pounds, I sweated like this. Don't worry, Gary. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, he, he, he takes the Psalms and he, and he breaks them into three groups. He talks about Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of new orientation. And let me say, if this isn't a Psalm of orientation, I don't know what a psalm of orientation can look like. Think of the perspective that you gain from the words of the psalmist here, Psalm 39, the, a perception of our fleetingness and how that informs the way that we live our lives. Wow. The psalmist understands that physical life is a gift and that that life is limited. In fact, he says that his days are as a few handbreadths. In the ancient world, the handbreadth was the shortest standard of linear measurement. So, you know, how you kind of fold your finger over like that, you've got four fingers, that's a handbreadth. He says, my life is, is just like a few handbreadths. That's all. 
It's a handy thing to carry around, isn't it? actually bought the J.V. Kane football card so that I can put it right next to my computer on my desk at school. I remember when J.V. Kane died. I was a St. Louis Cardinals fan, now Arizona Cardinals. I need that reminder. I am like a shadow of smoke. Four fingers, always handy always a reminder to me of my contingency, my dependency upon one greater than me, a, de a dependency on my maker. I read in preparation for, for this message about Philip II of Macedon. You know who Philip was? He was the father of Alexander the Great. And apparently, well, we know that back in that day they didn't have alarm clocks, right? This is B.C. But he did have servants, and he was aroused each day with these words, Philip, you are mortal. Philip, you are mortal. Wow. I really, I've got a brand new phone, okay? And I've got to figure out a way, I can ask Barry to help me, how to make that my alarm clock in the morning. Steve, you are mortal. You're going to die. Does that not provide an orientation to my life? Does that not inform the direction I take in every moment? It ought to. I think another great way of understanding who we are and our limitedness, our frailty, our fragility, is to see how God first introduced himself to Moses. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. You'll remember this if you have spent any time, uh, appreciable time in the Word. You remember that Moses, uh, after having a privileged upbringing in Egypt, had fled uh, into the wilderness, had spent some time in Midian. He was actually working as a shepherd. He was out with flocks, and he had this vision of God there in the form of a bush that was burning but not being consumed by the flame. And so there was that, the discussion. Uh, it starts, of course, by God saying, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. And he's telling Moses, God is telling Moses that he's going to to, to go and to uh, be a mouthpiece for his people. And in verse 13, starting in verse 13 of Exodus 3, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
I am. I am who I am. This is God's covenant name. This is the name by which He introduces Himself to His people. I am who I am. But what does that mean? Is it just a poetic jumble? Was God trying to be intentionally evasive or cryptic? I don't think so. He identifies what is His most essential attribute, what theologians call His aseity. It means He is of Himself. He is the self-existent one. He is not contingent. He is not dependent on any other. And this is the way He introduces Himself to His people. I am who I am. He is the only non-contingent being in the universe. And although we may take this a little bit for granted, it is this very attribute that should drive us to Him, independence, obedience, and worship. After all, when He first spoke to Moses, He says, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. I am the non-contingent one. I am the self-existent one. We see from James 4, from Luke 12, and from Psalm 39 that life is fleeting, that life is fragile. Sure, we see from these passages that tongue sin is a serious thing, but even more serious is the heart and the mindset behind that tongue sin, an attitude of independence from the only self-existent one in the universe. Of this attitude, Thomas Manton writes this, the world is not only our darling, but our God. And that is the reason why worldly people are always represented as people who confidently assume that things will happen. When I worked at the South Carolina Geological Survey, I was fresh out of college, went to work there, you know, wet behind the ears. Actually, I'm wet behind the ears right now, but um, different type of wetness. Um, I had a coworker there named Ralph. He was a paleontologist, a stratigrapher. He was 10 or 12 older years older than I. He was a pretty bright and thoughtful scientist. But one day we got talking about life and death. Great subjects to talk about, by the way. And in the midst of this conversation, he said that he was going to live a long time. And I said, what? You're going to live a long time. I said, Ralph, Last week, you were driving your little red subcompact car to work. You hit a deer. The car was totaled. You could have died. And you say, you're going to live a long time. You could have died then. You could die today. Meteorite impact. Who knows? It happens. He says, I'm going to live a long time. We've got longevity in our genes. My grandmothers, they all live to be 100, blah, blah, blah. My mind was, head was spinning. I'll live a long time. I doubt that Ralph had ever read James chapter 4. But if he had, he misunderstood the passage. The natural man, as well as the Christian who loses his way, will assume and presume all sorts of things 
that are simply beyond their control. But there's good news. Through Christ and his gospel, we have access to God. It's clearly laid out in the book of Hebrews. We're going to read a few verses from there in just a, just a, a moment. But the psalmist at the very end of the passage that we read there in, in Psalm 39, how did he end it up? Did you notice that one verse at the end? He said this, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. He says, tell me the, the, the fleetingness of my own existence. My hope is in you. This is the right way of looking at life and death. Not like those merchants in James 4. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to accomplish this. My hope is in you. Like the psalmist, we can ask our Father to assist us to understand the brevity of our life. He's given us a reminder. A few handbreadths of life. We do not own our own lives and our, or our own destinies. Even though movies, self-help gurus, Harvard Business School books may tell you otherwise, you do not control your destiny. The sin of arrogant presumption and self-sufficiency, that is feeling secure enough to leave God out of one's calculations, is titanic and it will utterly and surely sink the one who possesses it. On the other hand, the person who knows that God is their sufficiency realizes that their whole life is measured by God's revealed character and will and trusts Him. In verse 15 of, of James 4, practical instruction is given about how to help the presumptuous avoid their presumptions. And it says this, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we are to live and do this or that. Now, by God's grace, we need to avoid reducing this to a mechanistic ritual. Would that be possible? Scotty, could you do that? Just say, Lord willing, Lord willing. Imagine if my wife sends me to the grocery store and then calls me and said, well, could you also pick up some green beans? Lord willing, I say. <laughs> oh, oh get, some, get some of that new Bluebell cookie two-step. Lord willing. That's stupid. <laughs> this is not supposed to be some sort of mindless mantra that we just tack on to everything. That's not the point. Yes, tongue sin is a problem, but this is just another tongue sin if we make this into an unthinking ritual. Lord willing, Lord willing. That's not the point at all. This is not supposed to be just a formulaic expression. It's an appeal to the human heart that it recognize the fragility and fleetingness of our existence but with a particular end in view. Think about parents. Some of you are parents. And hopefully, as you deal with your kids, you understand that you need to address not just their speech patterns or their behaviors, but you understand that you need to address their heart because it's a heart attitude that's behind those speech attitudes and those behaviors. Now, an unpaid 
uh, ad for upcoming parenting class. In October, for Tuesday nights, we're going to be doing a parenting uh, get trained class here at Redeemer. And you're all invited, young and old. We're a body. We need each other. We need the perspectives that, that older parents bring to the table. We're going to have round tables and we're going to have experienced people working with younger people. It's a great, great plan. We're going to be going through a book by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart, and there'll be different presenters and then roundtable discussions. But just the same way that, that godly parents want to address the heart of their kids, God wants to address our heart, not just our speech patterns, but what's behind those speech patterns. In verse 16 of James 4, he says this, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You see, behind the tongue sin is a fatal arrogance, unalloyed evil that says, I get to call the shots. I'm in control. In short, such arrogance is a declaration of independence in the worst possible way. So what are ways that we assert that our own notions about the true order of things is authoritative and thus carry sway? Let me give one recent example. You may have heard that John Saunders, longtime ESPN uh, anchor, died August 10th. As you would expect, people in, the, in his business started tweeting, you know, saying how much they would miss him. Ray Ratto, who's a San Francisco Bay Area sports writer, tweeted this of Saunders passing. John Saunders passes, proving yet again that the deity is working off the wrong list. Let me read that to you again. John Saunders passes, proving yet again that the deity is working off the wrong list. Now, I'm sure that Mr. Ratto wanted to say something good about John Saunders, right? He's saying he was a good guy. Would have been great had he lived longer. Mr. Ratto actually got something right here, didn't he? He realized that the deity has something to do with this. But think of that. Think of the arrogance behind that, proving yet again that the deity is working off the wrong list. Talk about arrogance. I know better than God. Who should live? Who should die? Or think about not just who should live or die, what about the way that I live? The way that I conduct myself, the choices that I make, the plans that I make. James' instruction in verse 17 is dead on target. He says this, whoever knows to do the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, I think it's, it's customary to kind of lift that verse out of context and use it for any sin of omission, anything that we should have done, ought to have done, maybe were required to do but didn't do. But look at it right in the context. 
What is the sin? The sin is knowing that God's in control, but acting otherwise. Like, I can know, I can check off a box, intellectual assent, that says, oh yeah, God is sovereign, God is working providentially, and then live my own way. I could ask for a show of hands to see if I'm the only one who does that. I wouldn't say it out loud, but in practice, in my daily life, I might do that. I might think that my way is better, that I've got things under control. Think of those words back in Luke 12, fool, don't you know that your soul is going to be required of you tonight? I don't know anything. And if I do know something, it is such a tiny, minuscule drop in the bucket of everything that there is to be known. I've, I've been to school a lot. Uh, some of you may know that. I've been to school a lot, and the one thing that I'm increasingly convinced of is how little I know. That should be the takeaway when you go to school. I don't know anything. There's so much more to know. But I know someone who knows everything. Wow. And he delights to reveal some of those great mysteries to me through his word. Our lives are truly in his hand. He has revealed, he's proven that he is good. He has proven that he is faithful, and therefore we can know that he is trustworthy, that we can look at our lives and say, he's got this. It doesn't mean I don't have to do lesson plans. It doesn't mean that I don't have to grade papers. All teachers hate grading. I still have to do that stuff. But it means I know that there's someone who's in control, who has, is working for his glory and for my ultimate good. We can have assurance that he's trustworthy, regardless of what the Ray Rattos of the world think about God and his lists. Will we love and trust ourselves and this world, or will we love and trust God? This question ties directly back to verse 4.4 in James that Jeff explained last week. James 4.4 says this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Thankfully, God has made a way. He has made a way for that enmity to be removed. So salvation, first from the penalty of sin, then from the power of sin, and ultimately from the presence of sin is available to us. That way is Jesus. At the moment of justification, when, when someone trusts in Christ, he removes the penalty that belongs to the sinner. Through the life of faith, he delivers us 
from the power of sin in our lives. And at the moment that when we see Him, He will deliver us from the very presence of sin. First John says that when we see Him, we'll be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. Hebrews 12 is, is helpful. Turn, turn to Hebrews 12. We'll look at a couple of verses there and then a few verses in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 12 is, is so helpful, uh, thinking of orientation and how Psalm 39, how James 4 give us an orientation for life. This gives us a perspective on the way, the one who removes the chasm caused by our sin and allows us to be in relationship with the triune God. Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And do you see this? He is the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross for you, for me. Same letter of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is superior to all others. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. He's greater than the Old Testament law and anything that it could provide. He alone is the new and living way. Turn to Hebrews 10, starting at verse 19. Hebrews 10, verse 19. If you are in Christ today, then you can... Rejoice in the truth of these words. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We can trust him with our lives and with our deaths. Some of you heard about the, the young fellow who was working at Frontier Camp, Hudson Adams, 18 years old. While swimming, apparently he must have come into contact with uh, one of these flesh-eating amoeba. Within a few days, he was dead, 18 years old. Many of you know the Adams family. I do. My next-door neighbor, Dennis, died on Wednesday. We can trust him with life and with death. And death 
should inform our lives. It should cast bright light on the choices that we make today, tomorrow. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Philippi, said that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Does that mean that we say, okay, let's all go die because, after all, death is gain? I don't think that's what, what Paul is communicating. Death holds no terror for those who are in Christ, for those who have trusted Him as their Savior. You'll remember those words of Paul to, to the Corinthians, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Leonard Cass has explored in one of his books uh, this whole idea of mortality, the fact that we are mortals, that we will die. Philip, you are a mortal. Steve, you are a mortal. And he says that there is a virtue in mortality, in that fact that we are dying creatures. He writes, mortality makes life matter, not only in the chemist's sense. Writers can be funny too, right? Mortality makes life matter. He goes on, mortality as such is not our defect nor bodily immortality, our goal. Rather, mortality is at most a pointer, a derivative manifestation or an accompaniment of some deeper deficiency. As so many cultures speak of a promise of immortality and eternity suggests, first of all, a certain truth about the human soul. The human soul yearns for, longs for, aspires to some condition, some state, some goal toward which our earthly activities are directed but which cannot be attained during earthly life. Do you think that whatever the new heavens and the new earth have in store is just a continuation of what we have here? Would you want what you have here to go on forever? Torn labrum, bad knees, sweating problem, stupidity, bad choices, There is grace in death. The fact that we die, the fact that we are mortal, gives us perspective on what's happening right now, or should. Our soul's reach, Cass continues, exceeds our grasp. It seeks more than continuance. It looks for something beyond us, something, for the most part, that for the most part eludes us. Think of the masses of people who are searching for something and are not finding it. We have the privilege of being ones who can help them because God has rescued us. The preacher in Ecclesiastes tells us that God has created us with eternity in our hearts. And Augustine of Hippo wrote, and you've probably heard this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. The only way to find that rest is in Jesus alone, who said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He alone fulfills our longing. He alone satisfies. He alone gives temporal and eternal rest to the weary. He alone provides the perspective that we need to go through life. Physical death is not the ultimate enemy. Spiritual death is. And that death is endless separation from the one who not only created and sustains, but also gives meaning to existence. Will you trust Him? Will you trust Him more fully? Will you allow death to inform life? Christ has made a way for us, and in Him we glory. Let's pray.